Good afternoon, and um, welcome to the first in our Economics in Actions lecture series. Um, my name is Raja Beru, and I'm proud to welcome um, Reno here today. Um, we have Len Kuran, the Commercial Director, and Electric Vehicles Chief, Andrew Heron, and they'll be offering their insights onto in the future of the car industry, both um, in the midst of a credit crunch and in the midst of a future environmental crisis. So without further ado, I'll hand over. Um, can you all hear me? Okay. Uh, when Amina contacted us, uh, she said, okay, come and talk to us about electric vehicles. But I, I felt before we, uh, as, a, as a response to the competitive pressures that we've been feeling, but I think if we're to be very honest, electric vehicles are, are very much the future. Electric vehicles for us are something that, uh, being honest, will represent probably 20% of, of our volumes, and I'll, I'll give you some more information on that shortly, but also a, a something that will not become a reality for a mass market until 2012. So what I thought would be very useful if uh, our commercial operations director, Len, joined us today, and very briefly took you through, uh, if you like, what's been the foundation to this, because what we've been through as, as a business particularly but as an economy in general, is obviously a period of great turbulence and change. And really, uh, the electric vehicle is only part of the story. I just want Len to sort of take uh, half an hour or whatever to position the changes that have gone on in Renault and what we've had to do with our network to prepare the ground and, frankly, to still be here in 2011, 2012, and to be here in a healthy position uh, before we can even launch the electric vehicle. So I'll hand over to Len. Thanks, Andy. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, the first thing you'll notice is that I'm not local, so hopefully you won't have any trouble with the accent. Um, as Andy said, what we want to do is just give you a little bit of background uh, to what, what we've been through over the last couple of years. Um, before I do that, just to let you know who I am and what I do. So my name is Len Curran, um, and basically my job in the company is uh, to look after sales and to look after the health of the network. Um, and our network is our distribution network, so the dealers. Um, so uh, we also are responsible for what we call deployment. And deployment is where we take what's a strategic action, we convert it through a sort of funnel into specific actions, and then those actions we apply in the dealership, and that results in something that you would see when you get into the dealership. And that, that sort of funnel, uh, that transi transition phase sits with our department as well. Um, now, to give you a bit of background about uh, Renault and our performance, um, Renault have got a number of strings to their bow. Uh, you may know that we, we have uh, a, a significant interest in Nissan, uh, over 40% uh, stakeholding in Nissan. We recently took uh, a significant um, stakeholding in Avtovaz, which some of you will know as Lada um, in years gone by. And although Lada don't sell in the UK, they still sell in, uh, obviously in Russia and some European countries. Um, we have another brand which we operate in Asia called Samsung Renault. Um, and we have a, a, another string to bow which is called Dacia which was originally a, a, a Romanian car manufacturer um, who we bought over some years ago and have remarketed that product having uh, upgraded the, the production facility and such like. The other thing just to say on this slide is that you can see um, the, 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 the 
two brands that are that one brand in particular that have become much more relevant in the world automotive stage, which is Hyundai, Hyundai and Kia, and they're a significant force um, now in the world market. And particularly, uh, we find them in the UK. They're probably one of our biggest threats because for those sort of developing brands, the way that they're likely to increase their sales is at the cost of the existing, um, more entrenched manufacturers. They need to conquest, and we would be typically a, a, a target manufacturer for those sort of brands. Um, the other one that's interesting now you can see is the, the amalgamation of um, Fiat and Chrysler, and that's brought that amalgamation into the, the world stage in terms of um, the volume output. And there's a there's a sort of un, undefined rule that says you need to be in the sort of four million club to be able to really make car manufacturing work for you because of the very heavy costs of research and development. Um, What's particular for brands like us is that we, we operate in what we call the generalist segment of the market. That means the average segment of the market, so the, the average sort of person that would buy a, a typical product. So we're in with Ford, with Vauxhall, uh, with, with Peugeot, with Citroen. And um, what we've, we've, we've felt in this segment over the last, probably the last 10 years, but it get, it's getting progressively more difficult is a, a, more of an attack into that segment of the market. First of all, we're feeling it from what were originally the, the sort of economy brands. So Skoda, which if you go back 10 years ago was a sort of cheap and cheerful brand, are now much more coming into the, the, the main generalist market. So typical consumers like you and I would consider those products on a shopping list now. Likewise with, with Kia and Hyundai, as they start to improve their product position, they're starting to come into the market. So that's squeezed our market a little bit more. Um, in addition to that, we've also had the prestige brands who have traditionally only worked in the executive segment of the market starting to come into the generalist market. And that's typically um, where you have BMW with the 1 Series, where you have Audi with the A Series. And these are cars that are now coming into the range of your, your, your sort of typical average buyer. So what all the generalist brands are finding is that we're being squeezed more and more. Um, we have w one response to that because I mentioned to you earlier on that we have Dacia, and Dacia allows us to start to move more into this sort of economy uh, segment of the market. Um, but that, that, that is quite difficult, and this is one of the challenges that all the generalist manufacturers have. We now need to start thinking about how we differentiate ourselves in order to create our own place in the market so that we can protect our volume and continue our volume uh, moving forward. And it's something that Andy will talk to you about later on. It's one of the, 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 the um, strategies behind electric vehicles. To give you a little bit, a bit of a background about how difficult it is in the, in the market, I'll give you the Renault story, but it's, it's not dissimilar to a lot of other manufacturers and what we've done to get through what has been a very difficult economic situation for us. We traditionally are about a 6% market share. We, we used to have ambitions to be a 10% market share brand in the UK. As I showed you earlier on, we've got this pressure coming into the generalist market, so 10% is really unrealistic. It's typically going to be around 6-7% in a good year, and in a bad year it may go down as, uh, as low as 4%. And the reason I say that is our product is a cyclical product. And when you're at the top of your product cycle, your product is fresh, more people want to buy it. When you're at the bottom of your product cycle, then you have less people buying it. So it, it, there, is, there is always this sort of constant movement of, in your market share, um, up or down. When, you're, when we were at 6% a few years ago, we were heavily dependent on what we call high-cost channels. One of them is called Motability. Um, you may or may not know what Motability is, but it's a government-funded charity that gives people the use of a car in return for a government allowance. So effectively, it gives you a free car. 
Um, it's very easy business to do, but it's very expensive. Um, and if you're looking as a manufacturer to find some sales quickly, this is typically where you would, you would go to find them. Now, it's an important market for all of us in, the, in our industry, but there's a balance about, uh, about how much you really want to do. If you do too much, then you start to you negatively affect your position. Um, rental business um, is also, it's not, you're not selling on anything other than price on rental, so it's nothing to do with your image, it's nothing to do with the desirability of your product, it's simply to do with price. And the last area that, that we were quite active in, if I go back to 2003, 2006, is what we call tactical, which means demonstrators in the dealership. Effectively, it means a car that we sold to a dealer but we haven't actually yet sold to a customer. And that inflates your performance, so it makes you look like you're doing 6% market share, but in reality your market share is slightly less. The difficulty uh, when you're doing business like that is it puts your margins under pressure. There's certainly a cost associated with it. Um, the, the natural demand for our, your, our brand was less than that 6%, so we were effectively forcing product into the market. That meant that we gave our distributors very stretching targets. For those dealers to hit those targets, they were having to be more aggressive for the discounting. The effect of that is that you have less margin, less profit in the car. It affects us as well as a manufacturer. But more particularly, and the most important thing for a car manufacturer is that it affects your residual value. And the reason residual value is important is the cost of running a vehicle is mainly centred around the residual value. And what it means is you buy a car for £10,000, you sell it three years later, for whatever the residual value is. If you sell it three years later for £7,000, you've had a 30% depreciation, it's not so bad. If you sell it in three years' time and it's only worth £4,000, you've had 60% depreciation. That, that's a problem for car manufacturers because you end up compensating that with, with front-end discount, particularly in the fleet market, which is around 50% of the, the market in the UK. And the other thing we had during this period, because the pound was very strong, we had a lot of grey imports and that meant that cars were coming into the market cheaper than our dealers were selling them at and that also had the effect of forcing transaction prices down. And the last issue we had was the backbone for most dealerships is in their service department. That's actually the bit of the business that doesn't really suffer. It's fairly level all the way through. It's not as prone to economic cycles because if you have a car and it needs a service, you generally need to service it. Um, and the, uh, that's the backbone of the business and we weren't getting the best out of that and the other uh, final point we had was we had an historical issue in terms of some of, the, uh, some of our product quality it was more to do with the fact that the product was soft which meant that after three years we were having a number of issues with it that was an issue for us and we had to deal with that as well so that was the, the background the effect of that was our dealers were losing a lot of money uh, our residual values were falling as I said we also were having difficulty recruiting good quality dealers and good quality staff because the dealers weren't as profitable as they needed to be and we had this, this historical issue of, of a product reputation that we needed to address. Um, and all of this has been compensated with more discount and that's a one-way road to, to really disaster for any car manufacturer. So when we got to this point, we knew that we needed to do something different and uh, we, we, we put a plan together that was a two-stage two plan. Step one was to stabilise the business, and then once we'd stabilised the business, step two was then to go back into what we would call clean and organic growth. So that's growth that would allow us to be able to build our sales in a profitable and a sustainable way. So, excuse me for the graphics, it was a, a bright young person in the office that did these, definitely not me. But that was the plan. At the end of 2007, we were quite clear about this plan and we set off to do it. 
The plan fell into effectively five parts. The first one was to cut our sales into loss-making channels, um, and uh, that was the channels I mentioned to you earlier on. We made a decision to reduce our volume. Most manufacturers looked at us and thought we were crazy because all they could see was our market share in the UK going down. I haven't missed a target in my job for probably three years, but we did plan to bring our volume down, and there are very few manufacturers will plan to reduce volume, but we did it in order to protect the, the business and set a stable business going forward. We had to improve the quality of our cars. It was one of our commitments that in 2006 to have our products ranked amongst the top three of our main competitors in terms of quality, and we're definitely there at that point now. We've achieved that, um, and I'll show you some evidence of that in a minute. Um, Another issue we had was dealers that weren't making money. We set a dealer cost-cutting programme in place to take cost out of the dealers. If the dealers make more money, we make more money, because at the end, our profit and our distributor's profit are linked. If they can make more money through better efficiencies, we are not obliged to put so much margin into the product. Um, we had a number of very attractive new products coming that were going to significantly change the offer that we had going to customers. And then the last thing we did at the end of this was what we call network re-engineering. So I'll just come back to these very quickly. The objectives of these were to increase profit, to strengthen the residual values, to increase the, the, the perceived image of a product. And you can only do that by having product that has got a better quality and then to increase our sales through natural demand. That means customers wanting to buy the product because of the product and not because it's the cheapest product in the marketplace. So we set off on this challenge at the beginning of 2007. At the end of 2007, very confident. What actually happened in 2007 was we hit the credit crunch and that significantly changed the environment that we worked in. So we had to navigate our way around that. Um, the credit crunch uh, resulted in a drop in the exchange rate. For a car manufacturer who buys into this country in euros, that was a significant issue for us to deal with. Um, so that meant that the business, the channels that we originally set out to cut, we had to cut even more of them because much more of those channels were going into negative contribution. Um, the, the other issue we had at that time was, um, you'll remember that car manufacturers weren't able to raise money on the world markets. It was very difficult. The only way to deal with uh, that was to inject cash in quickly by converting your, your physical product into cash. So we had what, we, what was called in the industry to stock clearance. As it turns out in the UK, the way we work in the UK, we don't carry stock, so we weren't in that market. But all our main competitors had to convert metal into cash at any price. And the best time ever that I have seen in the 30 years I've been in this industry to buy a new car was in the last quarter of 2008 and the first quarter of 2009 because car manufacturers were more or less taking any money they could get to convert product into cash. And it was, it was a bonanza for, for the dealers because the dealers were making good margins at that time because the cars were so cheap. Um, and the last thing that affected us in 2008 was you probably know that many countries launched a scrappage scheme. And that meant there was a, we, were, we eventually did in this country, but we were behind. But it meant that there was a big draw for the products that, that, had, uh, that, that were being sold in this scrappage scheme, which meant in the UK our availability was restricted, so we, we suffered some effect of low availability. Nevertheless, uh, we, we, we managed our way through that. So what's actually, uh, what we're achieving now, if I show you some of the results, th this is quite a busy chart. Um, it'll take me a minute or two just to talk you through, but this is how the market is typically made up in the UK. So the green bar is retail sales. That's typically the, the number of, the percentage of the market that is where people buy a car as a retail product. The yellow line, the yellow box we call vehicle constructor. What that basically means is a, a, a self-registration or a tactical registration. It's a car that's been registered but has yet to find a customer. 
So it might be a dealer registering cars to get to his target without selling them. It might be us registering cars for our own fleet of demos. But whatever it is, it's still to be sold. So it's registered but not yet sold. Um, the blue line is um, LCD, we call that, but it is, it's a French expression. It's rental. It's the rental market. And you can see how big the rental market is. It's very significant. Then the, the sort of solid grey line is legitimate, what we call normal fleet business. And then that little bit at the top, the sort of dark grey with the lines, is the motability market. And that's about 200,000, and it's always about 200,000. It's not influenced by the economic uh, situation at all. But it's a very important market. It represents nearly 10% um, of the total market. And these lines that you can see running across there show you how we have traditionally performed in those segments. And you'll see all those lines coming down significantly. And the reason they've come down is because we set out to cut most of those high-cost channels of business in order to protect our financial stability. It also allowed us, because we were reducing our turnover, to reduce some of our internal costs. So we did make some people redundant. Uh, we did take some costs out of the business. But we reshaped our business to be much more efficient and, and much leaner. The important line there is this red line. The red line is our retail sales. And actually, although that did come down, it didn't come down significantly and we didn't set out to significantly reduce retail sales because that's where car manufacturers really make their money and we were able to protect most of our, our, our performance on retail. In terms of quality, uh, just to show you a couple of slides about where we've come over the last few years in quality, what this slide shows you is the number of um, breakdowns that, that we have on average um, per thousand vehicles and you can see that the trend is consistently down and in fact we're down, we're in amongst the top three now of, of car manufacturers in terms of uh, breakdowns. It's just one of the measures that we use from the breakdown and recovery services. Um, warranty, uh, which is where a vehicle has to come back into the workshop for repair under guarantee. You can see that the trend on that on average per vehicle is significantly coming down. And the, the last thing that we talk about when we talk about quality is our perception of quality with our customers. And although we're not where we need to be, our trend against the, the average of the top three manufacturers is improving. That's still got some work to do, but it's a much longer um, priority or a much longer objective to be able to fix that one. And this is just our own internal measurement of quality, and you can see that it's, we, we, we're, we're obsessed by this, and you can see that the trend is up. There is a delay reaction. You know, even though we, our products are good, we still get customers that are driving cars that they bought that are five and six years old, and they're still marking against the experience of the older product. Customers who are buying the, the product that we've produced over the last three or four years are much, much happier and score is much better. Renault 20 was uh, just very briefly a programme that we introduced to take cost out of our distribution network. It was called Renault 20 because the objective was to take £20 million in total out of our dealer network. Um, it was a joint effort between ourselves and our distribution network. We took various costs out that we were able to, so we cut the number of demonstrators that dealers had to run. We made the program simpler so that they could reduce their admin costs. Um, and on the other side, those dealers had a number of actions to do. In the end, um, what we, I'm not going to go through this, it will take too long, but in the end, we took out, uh, we set out a target for about 140,000. The, the, the um, credit crunch hit in 2008 and we revised that and that became 200,000. And at the moment you can see we're at just over 300,000 is the average reduction in cost that, that a, a typical Renault dealer has seen um, since we started this programme at the end of 2007, early part of 2008. In terms of product, uh, you may or may not know we've got um, 12 models that have got Euro uh, NCAP 5 star rating. 
I don't think there's any other manufacturer who has got so many cars in the range that have got um, a five-star rating. If there is, it's probably only Mercedes, um, but I, I think we're probably even ahead of Mercedes. And within that, the current range of products are amongst the best in terms of scoring on Euro NCAP safe, uh, safety. And although we don't particularly push this message, it's one of our uh, areas that we're very, very particular about is to build safety into the product. This is our model range. We've got um, quite a detailed mon model range. We cover all the segments of the market. The only market we don't really go into is the executive segment. And the reason for that is because that's, that's really the domain of the German manufacturers. Lots of manufacturers have tried to break into the segment. Um, if you think, uh, you may remember Ford used to have the Granada, uh, Vauxhall used to have the Senator. It's too hard a market to break into. It costs too much. The Germans dominate it, and that's why you would see companies like Ford traditionally had bought their way into it by buying uh, Jaguar or buying Volvo. That was their way of getting into that market. It was easier. In fact, Toyota is a very good example because Toyota introduced Lexus as a separate brand to be able to break into the executive market, and I assume that's because they recognised the difficulties of being able to put Toyota into, the, into that market because it, the, this market particularly are interested about what the badge in your driveway says and that's why Mercedes and BMW are so strong. These are some of the products that we've now launched. I mentioned that we had uh, new products coming into the market. One of the rules when, uh, in our business is that people buy with their eye and not the only reason they buy but it's the main reason people buy cars is they like the look of the car may have other considerations after that, but the, most people, the initial interest is, is that car something that, that I like the look of? And these are the, the current range of cars that we've got. There's a couple, uh, the one in the top, as you're looking at, top right-hand corner, and this one here will be launched uh, in summer, um, a couple of new convertibles that we're doing. But we, we, we try and design attractive products that make people uh, buy them. This is just another one that we do that we launched a few months ago, we call it the World Series, uh, based on the Megan platform. And this one is the Laguna, and it's, uh, you'll notice there's some similarity at the back end of that with a, um, an Aston Martin. Um, that's, that's a product offensive for network re-engineering. Uh, again, quite a difficult slide, but what it shows you up here is, on average, uh, it's thousands of sales by network. So if I take the example of Honda, you can see Honda were selling on retail sales around 45,000 units. And this tells us the number of dealers, and they had about 180 dealers. If you look at where Renault is, we were selling around 45,000, but we had significantly more dealers. We had about, in fact, we had about 260 dealers. You can see where Peugeot are over on the far right-hand side. The reason that slide is important is it means that there isn't enough volume to be able to feed the number of dealers that you've got in your network. So we had to downsize our network in order for the dealers that we had to be able to make a profit. So that's what we did. That's where we were. It shows you where all the brands are. The number of sales points that they have is rated on the, the, the actors on the left. And this is where we'll go. So by the end of 2011, we'll have dropped from 260 sales points to around 211. In addition, at the same time, when we're downsizing a dealership, uh, the number of dealers, we also looked at the size of the dealers because one of the big issues for a dealer is if you've been built to do 10% market share, you have a building that's built to do that, you have rates that's um, in line with that, you have rent that's in line with that, and we had a number of dealerships that were just too big to ever make a profit. So we took the opportunity when we were doing this exercise to also downsize the dealerships that were going to be structurally unprofitable. It was a two-year plan. It finishes at the end of this year. We're almost there with it now. It's almost finished, um, and it's, it, it's working well. 
I mentioned residual values. Because we pulled out of those high-cost channels, there was less used product coming into the market. The product is better. It's distressed less. We don't discount it as much as we did. Therefore, the natural demand for the product is better. And the red line is the average of the industry, and the yellow line is Renault. And you can see that we're starting on a 12-month-old residual value, starting to see some progress on that. We're ahead. And likewise, on the, the 36 month, we're starting to see a residual value strengthen. And that's probably the most important thing for car manufacturers' uh, ability to survive in a market is to have a strong residual value. So the second action then, once we'd stabilised the network, was um, to have profitable and sustainable growth. Um, we'll do that through uh, improving the image of our brand. And Andy's going to talk to you about that in a minute, about the impact that electric vehicles will have in terms of lifting the image of your brand. And we've gone from nobody really talking about Renault and electric vehicles 12 months ago to lots of people talk about Renault and electric vehicles and in a positive way. So although we're committed to that programme, there is also a benefit, a side benefit, which is that it improves the image of a brand. People talk positively about Renault, and that has a knock-on effect in terms of their, their consideration for your, your product when they come to buy it. And we sell that product through less dealers who are, who are leaner, therefore they, they can make a, a reasonable profit. This is the slide I showed you before. This is where we were in 2009, um, at the end of 2009. This is where we, the, the reason I show you quarter four is we always knew that we would come back to the market with more volume, but only when the conditions were right. And we started that process in July. And by the time we got to September, um, we could see the effect of that. So quarter four, we could see that our volumes are starting to come back. And this is our, our plan for 2010. Uh, we're aiming for just under 5% market share. It's not the be-all and end-all. If it has to be 4.5, it will be 4.5 rather than compromise the work that we've done in order to stabilise our business. Um, but we, we won't be sucked into market share for reasons of vanity. It will only be because the, the, the volume we think we're capable of achieving sensibly will deliver 5% market share. And this shows you how we started performing this year, which is we call this year Destination 5, which means 5% effectively. Um, and you can see the winners and losers so far this year in terms of market share gains um, over uh, 2009. There's a significant distortion because of the scrappage market. You can see that Hyundai and Kia have had a significant improvement in their fortunes this year. And they have been the main uh, beneficiaries of the scrappage market in the UK. Not the only, but definitely the main. They, they, they did a really good job with that. And you can see where we are. We've gained 1.3 points in the total market but we've gained two points in the retail market, which is the, the, the columns on the right-hand side. The fleet market will come, but it's a bit slower to react. It takes a bit longer to build your image back up in the fleet market and to get the fleet business coming towards you, but it will come. And that's why, at the moment, we're doing slightly better in retail than we are doing in fleet, but, but it's just a question of time. And lastly, for our dealers, I mentioned that our dealers had a hard time. This is the profit curve for our, our dealers in the UK. You can see how it's come down. This figure here that went into loss, the industry actually for the first time ever lost money in 2008 and it was the result of the credit crunch um, that did that. We actually were buying in line with the industry average at that point. Prior to that point we were behind the industry but we were buying in line and in 2009 you can see we had a good recovery and we're in a good position to be able to, to continue to build on that for 2000 and, uh, 2010 and beyond. So what's next for Renault? Andy's going to uh, take you through in a minute, but before I hand over to uh, Andy, I just thank you for your time and ask if there's any questions before I, I pass you over to Andy. Uh, you mentioned that recently you bought a half of a 
a share in AfterBuzz. Oh, I think you need to, uh, don't, uh, don't quote me on this yet, but I can confirm it, but I think it was around 20%. The, um, the, I, I, the part of the reason definitely was the sale of technology because what, what, what interested after we were looking for a number of partners um, one of the advantages that, that we had was we, we very advanced engine technology and for the, 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 the opportunity for after was to upgrade the factory to upgrade the product and to bring the product into the, the if you like the, 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 the 20th century because after still sell a much older product for those of you who remember we still sell, they still sell the old Lada Riva, if any of you remember that, um, in Russia. Um, the main benefit was really the, the, the opportunity of technology transfer and the, the revenues that that would generate. Of course, Russia also felt the economic crisis, so financially it's been a very, very difficult uh, um, decision for us. Um, you know, we've, we felt, we've, we felt the pain of that, but it doesn't mean we've given up. It was, it was more to do with the market. We're still committed to that and the, 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 the market eventually will come back in Russia with better products. It's, it's slow growing, there's no question about that, but the main reason was the opportunity to have technology transfer and the revenue that the sale of that technology would generate for Renault. Well, after we were looking for a partner. They look, we, we, in our case, we were interested in the, the revenue of selling them our technology, but to be able to have that revenue, we needed to take a stake in the business, and that was that was the reason for doing it. I'm not sure if that answers your question, otherwise I'm, I'm not clear what the question is. Yeah, yes, I understand the reason why wants to sell. Yes. The reason for us, though, is we generate we generate revenue from, we don't, you know, we don't sell the technology for nothing. There's a price associated with the technology, and Aftervaz would pay for that technology but in order to get to that position, we needed to take a stake in the business. Any other questions? Oh, okay, I'll hand over to Andy. Thank you very much. Okay. Unfortunately, I'm not blessed with a voice that works quite as quickly as Len's, so we're probably going to slow down a little bit. Um, what the actions that Len, the department, Renner UK have done is provided, as you can see, a very, very solid foundation for us. And now, really, I want to take you through uh, electric vehicles, which is, is arguably the, the core feature of the, uh, the discussion today. Just give you some background. I don't want to get into a, a climate change debate. I don't want to get into a global warming debate. It is an irrefutable fact, however, that governments have in different ways signed up to reduce carbon emissions. And for this country, Climate Change Bill 2008 set a level or an aspiration for the UK of reducing carbon emissions by uh, 80%. Now, one of the things that will affect that is obviously things like the decarbonisation of electricity, but the motor trade has a very, very significant part to play. Now, in the reports, uh, in one of the reports that was used as the basis of that, which is the King report, they highlighted three, three areas. So, use of cleaner fuels. I will never stand here today and say that the, the internal combustion engine, the diesel engine, is dead. It will be part of our automotive landscape for many more decades 
but it will be improved and by use of cleaner fuels and better technology the, we will continue to get uh, improvements but there is, a, there is a level to which you can there is a level which is basically a ceiling in terms of the improvements you can make on that. We also need to change consumer behaviour so here I'm talking about things like the Act on CO2 campaign. Again, it's a contribution, but uh, questioning uh, unnecessary journeys, uh, pumping your tyres up, car sharing will only take you so far and may deliver a strong single-figure percentage improvement. One of the big leap forward has to be new technology. When I say new technology, it's electric vehicles, it's hybrid vehicles, it's plug-in hybrids. I'm quite happy to talk about any of those. It is in the longer term, it's hydrogen fuel cells. A little bit later, I'll give you a sort of what I'm calling a technology map or a technology timescale. One of the things we've been looking at before we even considered electric vehicles is our overall uh, impact on the environment. So yes, this is a blatant plug for Renault. The point I'm making here is that most people trumpet their uh, low emissions credentials. We've taken a three-fold approach to it. So yes, we look at the emissions from the vehicles in use, but we also look at the, the, the pollution uh, and the, the wastage associated usage of water, pollution from production. So we look at, the, look at it at the factory end, and we also look at it in terms of the whole life of the vehicle. So use of recycled materials within the production of the vehicle and the recyclability of that vehicle at the end of its life. And just a little point uh, before I click the button. In the energy industry, they tend to talk about emissions lock-in. And by that, they mean the power stations they build today, the cost of those is amortized over 30 or more years. So the power stations of today will still be pumping out whatever level of uh, pollution is associated with them by 2040. We have made, and Lens made a big uh, play on it, we've made great advances as an industry, not just as Renault, but as an industry in terms of the reliability, the robustness of our products. The cars that we're putting on the road today will probably still be on the roads in the 2020s. So we really need to, we really need to act very, very quickly because uh, we are literally mortgaging our future. And as I say, I'm, I'm, not a, you know, I'm not entering into a big environmental debate. I'm merely making a point that th the cars of today will still be on the roads in a decade's time. The, you can, people will stand here and will give you lots and lots of figures for uh, the, the level of carbon, uh, the percentage of carbon coming from automotive. Highest figure you will probably hear is around about 22%. That's for road transport, but that includes heavy goods vehicles as well. The more realistic figure is probably somewhere between 13 and 16%, uh, depending on where you measure it in the world and what country. But I, it's fair to say that probably about 17% of the carbon emissions are associated with, with our business, with passenger cars. So now let's move on to electric vehicles first point with electric vehicles is not everybody is saying the same as we are. What we as Renault are saying, and the slightly shorter gentleman on that slide is Carlos Ghosn, he's basically the main man for Renault and Nissan. Carlos Ghosn's vision is that by 2020, 10% of global car sales will be electric vehicles, 
and for the alliance for Renault and Nissan the weighting of that will be 20% of our sales so we clearly fall into the camp of believers Daimler being less slightly less committal but they're saying substantial if you look at VW or BMW the figure is low single figure percentage now there are a number of reasons for that the reason I would uh, the most common reason is it really depends on your own product plan your own aspirations and also your visibility we obviously have very clear visibility of our own product plan the number of models we're going to introduce not in the next couple of years which I'll talk to you in a moment but in the generation in the, the next vehicular generation after that so that visibility coupled with your knowledge of the competition coupled with for some manufacturers they believe and again I'll elaborate on this very shortly they also believe that the charging infrastructure where you can plug in your electric vehicle to get it charged will also affect the impact of that now um, I have seen presentations where people will show these sort of grey tinted photos from a hundred years ago I'm not going to be quite that dramatic but the electric vehicle has been around for almost as long as the motor vehicle there have, since the war there have been a significant number of electric vehicle projects launched most of them have never really become an economic reality so why the cynics in the audience might, may say why is now going to be different I think the first point is we are increasingly aware of the need to change our behavior environmental ecological awareness is there probably 20 years ago the big debate that was being had was what happens when coal and gas runs out and the dream was almost to find a very large seam of coal previously untapped and to just keep keep mining coal and keep using coal basically fossil fuels that has now completely changed we're really talking quite strongly now about decarbonization so first of all there's, there's consumer awareness and consumer awareness has to happen secondly is there's regulatory pressure so there's pressure uh, whether you regard Copenhagen as a success or a failure at the end of the day nothing was signed at Copenhagen the point is that there is a willingness to, to, to move forward there are also urbanization trends we as a world are becoming a lot more urbanized something like two-thirds of people will be living in urban or city environments in the net by 2050 and finally there are political measures being taken people polluters being penalized and low emissions are being incentivized so as I say there is there is a carrot and stick approach this is what Len was mentioning earlier competition we are being squeezed by budget brands and we're being pressurized from above by prestige brands the electric vehicle for us as a mainstream mid-market manufacturer the electric vehicle is a clear point of differentiation we as he said covered off low-cost brands through our own offering in terms of Dacia but we also need to rationalize our product range electric vehicles are as I say a significant volume and yet with a few additional products so it's not a question of spreading the jam too thinly so what's our vision how are we going to make this happen as I say electrical vehicles perhaps historically also attracted a price premium so we're talking about mass market affordability bringing the the engineering power the economies of scale of a major manufacturer to electric vehicles previously it's been very much a niche market new technologies are available and I'll talk about that in just a moment 
and also we need to define our own role in terms of the energy market. And if that's a complicated sentence, all I'm saying is who manages the battery? I'm quite happy to talk about that. It probably looks like four or five different reasons, but if you take the time to read uh, what's written on there, what it all boils down to, three words, battery, battery and battery. And what has changed, uh, what makes the electric vehicle more appropriate now than, than at any time in the past is lithium-ion batteries. So you can read all of those, but basically it's battery breakthrough. We have secured, through a joint venture between Nissan and NEC, we have uh, effectively an in-house battery supplier. And energy density, which is the buzzword, means that basically the battery of today this is the buzzword energy density. The battery of today can deliver through a quarter of a ton battery, which is not an insubstantial weight. I wouldn't want to be sort of fitting those manually myself. But a quarter of a ton battery, when you think a full tank of petrol is 50 to 80 kilos, so this is a ba the battery is 250 kilos. That 250 kilo battery will give you a 100 mile range. If you had a lead acid or a nickel cadmium battery, you could still have a range of 100 miles. The problem is, if you, if you look at the, the y-axis, the vertical scale, what that is telling you is that the amount of power, the amount of watt-hours per kilogram of battery, is about three times more for a lithium-ion battery than it is for a NICAD battery. Go back to what I just said. Yes, I could give you a battery, a nickel cadmium battery that would deliver a 100-mile range, the problem is it would weigh, weigh about three quarters of a ton. And you get to a point where it simply becomes economic. Yes, they're cheaper. Yes, they're easier to produce. But they are not the solution going forward. And lithium-ion batteries, which are a relatively recent innovation, are what gives us the leap forward in terms of uh, electric vehicle technology. Now, Part of the debate is as well about reducing emissions associated with, with vehicle use. Those are some vehicles from the Renault range. They're the Eco2 vehicles that I was talking about, less than 150, 140 grams of CO2. We've got a uh, M2, so an upper medium, a large family car, 130 grams of CO2. We've even got now, as many manufacturers have, a Clio coming out this year with less than 100 grams of CO2 per kilometre. All very good. And that, as I said at the, the, the top of the talk, that will continue to reduce bit by bit, but there will come a ceiling, or to be more precise, there will, we will hit a glass floor. I was listening to an engineer from BMW. He was asked in terms of how far could efficient dynamics go. His response was, unless you fundamentally change the way we look at the motor car, the materials it's built from, the way we use it, the design of the car, he can probably improve in the foreseeable future by about 20%. So you will hit that ceiling, or floor as I should call it, somewhere in the late 80s in terms of grams of CO2. There's a little dotted line that I've put on there. For a plug-in hybrid vehicle, the benchmark is 75 grams. The government is putting together an incentive scheme, which I'm not going to get into the details of today. It was launched this week. It will be effective from January 2011. And to qualify for that, for a plug-in hybrid vehicle, so a vehicle which is effectively, it's an it, it, internal combustion engine, but with an electric motor as well in parallel, but it can be plugged into the grid. 
hybrid electric vehicle is one, sorry to just get some terminology on the table, hybrid electric vehicle is one with an electric motor and a petrol motor, a petrol or diesel, internal combustion engine, but the two work in parallel, you don't plug it into the grid, the battery is recharged from the, from the, motor, from the, from the motor. Plug-in hybrid, which is what's being incentivised, the benchmark for that is 75 grams. And right over on the other side, so a very significant, the electric vehicle is a step change. It is zero emission motoring, measured, before anybody says it, in the way that we measure emissions today, which is from your tank to your tailpipe, i.e. emission in use. So to head off that debate, that's an efficient medium segment car, it's a Megane. We would state a uh, CO2, a consumption, uh, consumption figure of about 120 grams, just under 120 grams for that. When you take into account the extraction from a point of view of oil, extraction, refining, and bulk distribution of, of that, it adds probably about 15% to the figures. So even for the Prius, which is 89 <coughs> grams, which is the, probably the leading and certainly the most celebrated uh, eco vehicle around at the moment, the Prius comes out at just over 100. If you take your electricity from a good old-fashioned coal-fired power station, you'll be over 120 grams. The European average is about 67. In the UK, we're around that mark as well. Gas becomes slightly better. And when you get to the bottom of that chart into nuclear, and bear in mind uh, the country that Renault come from have a very, very strong nuclear grid mix, you're looking at... A, you're looking at close to zero. When you get onto renewables, you're at zero. Now the good news in the UK is, yes, we're looking at nuclear. Yes, we all know that number of sites, potential sites around the UK have been identified for nuclear power. But there's a very, very strong commitment from the government towards renewables. Their objective is that 30% of power, 30% of electricity will be generated from renewables in 2020. So it's the same time span that I was talking about in terms of in terms of the, the, the time that these vehicles will be on the road. It's the near future. Urbanisation I've already mentioned. At the moment, around half of people live in cities. In 2050, which is the significant milestone for us all, uh, although I'll be well into my 80s by then, so it's probably less of a more of a milestone for my children, to be honest, who themselves will be quite old two-thirds of people, 70% of people will live in an urban environment. Another strong reason is that when you speak to people, they, everybody believes that they go on very, very long journeys. The reality, and a lot of people's reaction to electric vehicles or reservations about electric vehicles are what we describe rather pertly as range anxiety. The reality is that the average motorist, if such an average motorist exists, seven out of eight motorists drive less than 40 miles a day. So the electric vehicle, or should I say the electric vehicle with a range of 100 miles, is a completely rational and completely appropriate purchase, choice of transport, whatever you want to call it, for the vast, vast majority of motorists. Yes, your your rep, your person who drives 40, 50,000 miles a year 
is probably not for the time being going to be an electric vehicle driver, but for the vast majority of people, it's a reality. So, in terms of reality, am I talking about a load of sort of tomorrow's world products that will never ever see the light of day? Middle of 2011, we will be launching two vehicles. The Fluent, I'll, I'll give you a very brief overview of what these vehicles look like, or what they, the performance figures. Fluence is an M1 segment, it's a medium segment car, four door, four five person family saloon. Perfectly appropriate vehicle. Kangoo van is your bog standard, if I can use that word in hallowed academic place like this. Your bog standard. That's quite all right. Did you enjoy it so far? Thanks. Sorry about that. It's a kangoo. It's a kangoo van. It's your standard jobbing builders postal van. Twizy is a little bit different. It's an urban car. That's a two-seater car. One person in front, one person behind. Again. It could be one of those vehicles that you see absolutely all over London, but it is a city car, it's an urban vehicle. And finally, what will probably be responsible for driving our volume is an I-segment vehicle, so a small car, Fiesta, think Fiesta, think Corsa, think Clio, the Zoe, and that's launched in mid-2012. So a range, in the space of 12 months, we'll be launching a range of four vehicles. I won't dwell on these slides too much because they're, they're quite techy, the two key points I would, I would uh, bring to your attention, the range through the use of lithium-ion batteries is 100 miles, the speed is 80 miles an hour, 130 kph. So if anybody thinks that uh, electric motors are limited to milk floats and golf carts and small things that anybody has seen driving around centre parks, that's not the case. These vehicles have linear acceleration, so from accelerating away from the lights because of the nature of the, uh, the way the power curve works, these are, these are quicker away from the lights than the petrol or a diesel engine, unless you have for a normal car. Yes, I'm sure somebody will point out that there's a, an Audi supercar or something that can go quicker, but, but I've, I, I can tell you I've driven one and it's really quite impressive. Yes, the top speed is limited to 80 miles an hour, but for most people that should be enough. Fluence, as I said, large size vehicle, 4.8 meters, exactly the same vital statistics in terms of range and speed. Twizy. This vehicle could not carry, in case you didn't realize it, a quarter of a ton battery. So you've got a half size battery, you've got a 120 kilo battery. It's a smaller, lighter vehicle, but it still sees a, a reduction in terms of the range of the vehicle and also because of limitations of the product the speed is limited about 50 miles an hour again it's still lithium-ion technology and finally this vehicle is two, almost two and a half years away it's the Zoe so this is the other vehicles are pretty well what you'll see coming to the streets in just over 12 months time this vehicle is a little bit different it's a concept car it will be, look more mainstream when it arrives same battery same 24 kilowatt hour battery, so same vital statistics. Now, this is a. This is what I said was very different. Uh, if you look at historically, something we as motor manufacturers have been doing for a century and more, we're pretty good at, 
is we build cars. We also service, repair cars, and we also sell ancillary services around that, roadside assistance, finance packages, and what have you. And we've been doing that and perfecting that for a while. We don't tend to deal particularly with petrol stations. The oil companies have their own marketplace. The petrol station, in inverted commas, for, a, uh, for an electric vehicle is your electricity supplier. So these are the people who will be and are already installing charging posts, infrastructure around London. Uh, that will is the government plugged in places funding, which was again announced this week, three cities, which are northeast, which is a region, sorry, Milton Keynes and London are already plugged in places. There will be a, another wave, another tranche launched uh, later this year. But the energy companies manage energy and they don't tend to dabble in the motor trade. But what you've got, and uniquely with electric vehicles and with plug-in hybrids, you've got this middle ground, which is the battery. The battery is an integral part of the car, but it's also a significant part of the, the, the equation in terms of supplying uh, power and storing power for these vehicles. So at this point where we meet, we can either as a motor manufacturer enter into a partnership because what we want to offer a customer when they come in is we want to be able to sell, sell somebody a car and they will sign up on some sort of mobility agreement which will give them so many kilowatt hours or so many hours of charging or so many miles of usage of that vehicle. So we can either enter into a partnership so that we can sell a, if you like, a, a holistic package or alternatively somebody else may move into that marketplace. So let me give you an example of who that could be. There's already a, a thriving uh, leasing, automotive leasing business in this country. Their job is principally they buy vehicles from people like us and they lease them on a, a pence per mile or a pounds per month basis to their customers. So those are the type of organisations that could move into that middle ground, see a role for themselves and frankly leave us to produce uh, our traditional uh, fare, which is basically producing motor vehicles, or you might find new entrants come into that, new integrators in the marketplace. So that, that's, that, as I say, I, I brought that in because that is one of the challenges and one of the things that, if we're to be frank, we haven't got our heads around yet. There's still a lot of discussions going on. Uh, there are, as I say, new entrants coming in. A lot of people are getting their head around that. So I've got no clear answer on that. This build slide isn't building quite as quickly as I'd have. Probably by the time I've finished touching that, we'll be about six slides ahead. Right. What do I mean when I talk about infrastructure? What do I mean when I talk about charging? The vast majority of charging points out there will be standard charge. You plug in overnight, you plug in at work for the day, it takes six to eight hours to fully recharge your battery, and that will cost you overnight one and a half pounds or three and a half pounds during the day so pretty good value compared with the price of petrol and that's where most people will will do it we estimate that probably around two-thirds of people will, will recharge at home domestically quick charge quick charge involves three-phase electricity it's fantastic if you're going on a on a journey what we call pathway charging in 20 to 30 minutes you can recharge 80% of the capacity of your battery or you might want to look at it as extend your range by another 80 miles. 
that will, uh, as I say, that, that will do it very quickly by shooting uh, 400 volts of electricity into the battery. So that, that's where the big gain is. Three-phase electricity is not common in this country. There are parts of the grid that couldn't even support three-phase electricity and the three-phase chargers are a lot more expensive than the, the standard um, single-phase uh, 13 amp. So don't think that you'll see uh, those on every street corner. In London's plan, probably 500 out of the 25,000 charging points that London, that TfL are committed to putting in by 2015, only about 500 of them, so 2% of the total will be a fast charge, quick charge. You need to be able to move between those points, so smart navigation, all our vehicles will come with uh, satellite navigation, which will effectively, for, for longer journeys, you will identify the charging point as a, as a waypoint or a point of interest on your, uh, your route, and when you're driving more than 100 miles, you can plan your route around that. What is being worked on by the infrastructure providers is something that would allow you to pre-book that charging point. Imagine if you're, if you're going on a 150-mile journey, you need to charge halfway along, and you arrive at the same charging point that three other people are there for. Um, I hate being stuck waiting to wash my car for 20 minutes in a queue of five people, but to wait for an over an hour to recharge your car. So that's a smart technology needs to happen. And finally, the little sort of pie chart at the bottom. When we explain quick charge to customers, because it's not widely understood and it's not widely publicised, 87% of people actually buy into the idea and say, yeah, that, that would make the purchase of a car, it would make it more appealing for me. As I said a few minutes ago, most people will charge their car at home do their round trip, come back and recharge or top up the charge overnight. If you're driving longer distances, you may well do what, we, what I call here destination charging. So I charge at my destination, I return home and charge there. And for very long journeys, or for considerably longer journeys, reflect on the slide, a few slides back, which said that for, for the reality for most people is they're not making a vast number of these 100 mile plus journeys pathway charging pathway charging obviously depends on three phase so three phase that three phase electricity I would see as being the type of uh, facility offered <coughs> at motorway service stations if the recharging network doesn't happen or if it happens too slowly it's going to affect the way this market takes off what am I saying here what I'm saying is that there are a number of variables that are going to come into play. So can I access recharging? Can I access can I can I take my can I park my car and plug it in? Okay? Depending on worst case or best case, that will affect the way we sell our vehicles. And, and let me let me explain what's going on on the left hand side first of all. So first of all it, it's access to that infrastructure. The second thing is technology acceptance. That is quite simply how quickly will people buy into the idea of electric vehicles? How quickly will electric vehicles become the norm rather than some niche product? So that is 
uh, as I say, that, 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 that's an evangelical job that people like myself have to do. Attitude versus autonomy. Very, very simple. Autonomy is, is range. How comfortable do people feel trusting their 60, 70 mile journeys to an electric vehicle? And one of the things that will probably, and certainly if, if we look at what TFL are doing in London and how they see the growth of electric vehicles, one, they recognize that two-car households where there is the fallback position of a, of a larger, longer-range vehicle, those will be the first people to come into the market for electric vehicles because they've got their fallback position. When people feel comfortable and are prepared to say, OK, my one and only vehicle is an electric vehicle, that will be another accelerator because that will bring a whole group, whole further group of people in. And all this is saying is, OK, if we're at the middle, so if we've got a situation where 80% of people have access to uh, free, act, good access to infrastructure, three quarters of people buy the electric vehicle <coughs> up here. 80% of people can overcome this range anxiety, then the share will be about 25%. So 25% of sales could potentially, of our sales could potentially be that. And your peak year, if you move forward, if you take the optimistic scenario, if our peak year of sales with that vehicle could be advanced by one year, or if you take the worst case, it means that our peak sales will happen, will be delayed by a further two years. So that's what I say, there's a lot of attitudinal and infrastructure things which will come into play. So if anybody were to ask me the question, how many of these vehicles you're going to sell, I will say today, on the basis of the middle bit, I believe we're going to sell, uh, I'll make up a number because it's all highly confidential, but 10,000 vehicles in 2012. If, <coughs> if the worst case happens, the peak sales will probably not happen until 2014. So, so this is why when I'm out there talking to electricity companies who, who tend to say, well, we'll wait for you boys to stick 100,000 of these vehicles on the road and then we've got a business case, my counter to that is unless you start to, unless you're equally brave and start to stick charging points in, then we're going to have a problem. There is a little bit of science in this. Um, this isn't figures that, that I've made up. There was a report done by Arup for uh, Burr, Department of Business, Enterprise Regulation, and the Department for Transport in October 2008. They highlighted four scenarios. I've picked the middle two, which are called mid and high. On the left-hand side, you've got business as usual. So business as usual is basically pretty well where we are today. One or two cities have gone out on a limb and put in some infrastructure. There isn't much in the way of incentivization. That would probably mean, I apologize, the uh, focus isn't particularly good. In 2020, there'd be 70,000 electric vehicles on the road. If you go to the extreme scenario, 2.6 million electric vehicles. And if you look on the middle two, somewhere between 600,000 and 1.2 million. I've got, a, I've got a summary on the next, next one of those numbers. If I gave you an example, what would move you from business as usual to mid-range? Infrastructure, access to it, access to charging infrastructure, government incentive, and also a 
that there's an economic driver behind this. An economic driver is somebody uh, needs to basically say, it costs me, it's the equivalent to run an electric vehicle as it is to run a diesel. Once you've achieved that, you're moving to the mid and then take it onto the high range scenario. These are the numbers that you were straining to see. The interesting thing here is that if you look at 2020, electric vehicles are in the ascendancy. And if you look and the further up in terms of the, the speed with which the market takes off in those four scenarios, the further up there you go, you can see that the balance between the sales of electric vehicles against plug-in hybrids, note that point, gets to a point where you're outselling by three, four, and five to one. Go forward to 2030, so on the right hand, further right, you'll find that plug-in hybrids will then become more popular. And the reason being, and funny enough, I probably organised this chart the wrong way around, but I was going to give you the technology map and then show you the resultant, uh, the resultant volumes. What you've got is from 2010 onwards in the middle band, because that's what I'm here to talk about is electric vehicles, you've got commuter electric vehicles. As time goes by, battery technology improves because there is a, uh, a belief that battery tech, the generation for a battery will be five years. So by 20, the batteries of today in 2011 uh, will give you a 100 mile range. The next generation of batteries, which will be 2015, 2016, could see that range double. I personally don't subscribe to the argument that battery range will double and double again, and you'll have some super battery by 2020 that will deliver 400, 400 miles. I think there will probably be a limit to that, to lithium-ion technology in that respect. But as you get into the 2020s, with battery technology advancing, you'll have high-capability electric vehicles. So it's parallel performance with, a, with an internal combustion engine. The internal combustion engine is at the top. It's the, it's the constant thread that runs through it. What we've got at the moment is hybrid electric vehicles. I just took the time to explain those in a moment. And what we will have is a, what it actually says is low capacity plug-in hybrid up to 2015. So that, that technology will be available uh, fairly shortly. Mass market plug-in hybrids will not come until the middle of the, of the decade and then they will arguably become the dominant force through the 2020s and to, to, to 2030, which is why, as you see, the, the equation flips in terms of the proportion of those vehicles in 2030. I stated uh, a lot earlier, right at the beginning, that as an alliance, one of the key things that we believe, and I also mentioned it when I was talking about the government's own uh, uh, government's own levers that they see in terms of driving those different, uh, those four different scenarios was affordability. Our model for affordability is really very simple, but it requires a, a mental trick. Don't look at the battery as being part of the car. Look at the battery as being simply a fuel cell or a permanent supply of petrol. So our, propo our proposal to make the vehicles uh, affordable would be to say, if I look at the vehicle less the battery, and I price it net of the government grant at the same level of the diesel engine. So my Zoe in 2012, net of government grant, which would probably be about £5,000 indicatively, 
net of uh, the government grant will be the same price as the equivalent Clio. So my upfront purchase cost and my cost to, uh, if I were to finance that vehicle and hire purchase or whatever, will be the same. I take my battery and I lease my battery. So I put it onto the, to the right-hand side of the equation. By leasing the battery, I enjoy two benefits. One, I'm effectively paying for my battery uh, as, a, as a running cost of the vehicle rather than a lump sum up front. Just, just to sort of scale that problem, the Mitsubishi iMeve is indicatively priced at 27,000 pounds, something like that. That's a lot of money for a small car. The reason why that, partly there's a premium to pay for an electric vehicle because it's relatively low production. But a third of the cost of that vehicle is the battery. Lithium-ion batteries, as I said, are very, very expensive. So you're talking about probably eight to ten thousand pounds for a lithium-ion battery. That's a big old lump to take up front. If you lease that battery, battery life is expected to be seven or eight years. So your lenders talk about residual values and depreciation curves. It's an asset. It's not a thing of beauty. It doesn't depreciate in the way a car would be. It has a fairly linear depreciation curve. So you can spread the cost over eight years, or the late lessor, the leaser, you're the lessee, leaser, the lessor, leaser, will take on the responsibility for that, leases it back to the lessee. You've got a small reduction in maintenance. I don't want to get into a highly technical discussion, but if you think about it, electric motor, you haven't, you're not service it, you haven't got fuel filters, you haven't got oil in the engine or whatever. The electric motor is a fairly simple thing, so you've got reduced maintenance, reduced repair. Ba battery rental and electricity is cheap. I know we all look at our electricity bills and we all have a sharp intake of breath, but as a, as, as a power source, it's actually quite cheap. It's considerably cheaper than petrol or diesel. So it's a relatively small amount there. So that's our affordability model. I need to be careful with my earlier slides because I was saying everybody, everybody's, uh, everybody lives in cities and everybody drives less than 40 miles a day. Because of that, uh, battery leasing means that you've got quite a high fixed cost. If your car never turns a wheel, you'll still be paying £100 a month to lease a battery. What this basically says is, if you excuse the fact that the scale is in kilometres, there is a break-even point, probably somewhere between 7,500 and 8,000 miles a year, at which you may well still decide to buy an electric vehicle. You may well buy it because you believe it's the right thing to do. You may well buy it because it's a, a lifestyle statement. And you may well do it if you work in this wonderful city because it saves you uh, about £10 a day in congestion charge. I did a little bit of research on the um, congestion charge. Even if you took every single discount and bought an annual pass, if you were coming into London on a daily basis, it would cost you about £1,800 a year, £5,500 over three years. It would make that whole break-even curve completely different. But my point here is, don't regard these vehicles solely as being things that you run to the shop for five miles. There is a break-even point which is probably around 30 miles a day. We cannot do this alone. Our job as a vehicle manufacturer is to talk to people like yourselves, to evangelise, as I said, 
to bring a product that, to market that is affordable, is reliable, is robust, is well designed, but not so scary as a design proposition that it alienates people. But we can only do so much. What we need is a, is a number of other players to come in to, to, to bring this reality of, of zero emission mobility. Government, uh, government, both local and central, has a massive job to, to play both in terms of incentivising the purchase but also in terms of incentivising the use of the vehicles. So think about congestion charge, which we've already said, think about priority parking, think about tax breaks for the individual, uh, benefiting kind taxation, uh, tax breaks for the company who is brave enough to take on those vehicles in the next few years. So there needs to be incentives both in terms of the use and the purchase of the vehicle. They also need to push the energy companies and push the infrastructure people to, to deploy that infrastructure as quickly as possible. The utilities have a role to play, both in terms of building this network, but also in terms of decarbonising their, uh, their own power. And as I say, they are under, they are under pressure to, to, to decarbonise as well. I've talked about our involvement, which is traditional motor manufacturers one and we also need advocates we need people out there and uh, well I haven't brought you here for a sort of Billy Graham concert what I am hoping is that you will go away with a, a clear understanding of electric vehicles and, and a degree of advocacy but we need people to, to basically educate and we need to get over a lot of the taboos and the sort of history and uh, baggage associated with electric vehicles so you'll be pleased to know we are at summary time um, why are electric vehicles going to, going to, uh, going to benefit us or, or going to succeed now? The t basically the time is right. In terms of uh, people's attitudes, the economics of it, the government willingness to accept, and more than accept, but to incentivise these, uh, to incentivise electric vehicles and plug-in electric vehicles, the time is right. Electric mobility is recognised as being basically one of the major contributors in terms of making that happen. Our role as Renault and Nissan, and we work as an alliance in this respect, is to basically bring the products to market, to enable through our alliance with NEC to make sure that the battery technology is available and the R&D on batteries continues to happen because as I, say, as I say and if you looked at that technology map we have to keep developing the battery. And then finally we need those third party actors, the energy companies, uh, we need to basically have a joined up energy uh, market so that people are not receiving umpteen bills from different energy companies. There needs to be a degree of synchronisation there. And we need to, as I said, that, that that integrate a role between us as a car manufacturer, the battery, and the, the energy so that we can offer a holistic approach to it. <coughs> and I'd only ask for one minute of your time for my only blatant plug of the day, which is a very nice advert if it works, otherwise you can go home early. Raj, how does this work? <coughs> works. Oh. Hi, how's it?
there ever been a finer creation than the motor car? It's been making people happy, playing its part in every major revolution in society. But is it still in tune with the needs of today? Is it still acceptable that some of us are able to drive while others barely have the means to get around? Does enjoyment for some have to cost the lives of others? Making the most of our lives today shouldn't imply a lower quality of life tomorrow. At Renault, we think it's time to change things. For us, the pleasure of driving doesn't just mean pleasure for the driver. It's a pleasure we share with everyone around us. For us, safety means more than crash test dummies thrown around during tests. It means people. It means lives. For us, global warming goes beyond the emissions coming out of the exhaust. It's an issue we address before, during, and after manufacture. us, it's time to launch the electric car, to drive the motor car forward again, towards people, and for life. Renault, drive the change. Perhaps a little bit worthy for some people's tastes, but a very nice ad. Okay, uh, questions. I've managed to spin it out for so long that you've hardly got any time for them, but I'd be more than happy to take a couple of questions. I hate an informed question. Okay, quick drop, yeah. I have uh, I deliberately, that slide that when I talked about the infrastructure, I've deliberately taken quick drop out of that because if I could answer your question in two stages, why Israel, why will it work in Israel? Because the state of Israel has made a commitment that it will take 100,000 fluencies that are equipped for quick drop. So at a stroke, from a point of view of Project Better Place, they have a sort of critical mass which makes it worth their while. So th there's, there's, a, there's a political and governmental will to make it happen, backed by an, a, an accord with Renault, which means that those vehicles will be taken by Israel. Please don't ask me how the government are going to do it, but uh, effectively they, they've signed an order for those vehicles. And equally, Project Better Place are going to provide the infrastructure. I think part of it, I probably should, this is a personal view, I think part of it is, is the State of Israel also saying that we don't need oil. You know, it's, a, it's a very clear uh, point in their situation that they address. I'm a strong believer in quick drop, and I'll tell you why I'm a strong believer in it, because quick drop will become the petrol station of the future. Uh, it, would, it takes three minutes to do a quick drop. It, it, it's as much time as you would spend uh, filling up at a petrol pump and paying for it, if that. But I think we have to be realistic, and for the UK, first of all, not a, we're not market dominant. We're not going to sell every single electric vehicle, and even if we sold every single electric vehicle, 
it will probably still take us till the end of 2014 to have that mass of vehicles on the road. So I think you have to look at quick drop in terms of it will be something that when a number of conditions converge, one of which is uh, commonality, so everybody is using the same battery, which they don't at the moment, so it will require the same uh, shape of battery and certain uh, agreements between manufacturers will require a mass of vehicles on the road which will then allow a company like Project Better Place to come in and build because there is a, obviously a high upfront investment to building quick, quick drop stations so I'm not discounting it at all but what I'm trying to, t although I preface some of my things with I believe and I think what I've tried to keep today's presentation to be is factual and very much in a window of 2011 to 2013 and I see quick drop as being something that will probably be second half of, of this decade. It's like a Mexican wave, could I do it sort of that way? Yep. There is, um, there is. A, I think there's a leap. I, I think. I think there is a. It comes back to that. Those. Those different scenarios. That I said in terms of acceptance. I think there are some people who are already prepared to buy an electric vehicle. And I think the sooner we can get those vehicles on the road, so I think, if I could ask the, answer the question in, in three ways. One, there will be certain easy wins that we can make. So local government fleets, maybe a major rental operator, so we can get a, a volume of vehicles onto the road. So people start to see them and they start to become commonplace. There will be certain people who are more receptive to the idea of electric vehicles. And if I give you perhaps a very silly, small example, when we ran that advert, we had people coming to our customer services, phoning into our customer services centre, not, ask, not, not asking sort of questions about energy and things like that, simply saying, when will the vehicles arrive, how much will they cost, and can I have them on a motability scheme? So, so people have, some people have already engaged. Our job is to sort of broaden that as quickly as possible. Once we've got those people on the road and the advocacy there, then I think the key will be, within our dealerships, these vehicles will be available as demonstrators. And I think people have to just go along, drive the car, and realise that it's not like driving a milk float or a golf cart or whatever. It's actually, you enjoy exactly the same performance, virtually the same performance that you would, you would enjoy. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Uh, no. Over seven to eight years, and we've got to provide to OLEV, to the government, information on battery degradation from battery testing. But what we are going to do is we are capping the capacity of the battery so that the, the, maximum, the maximum power of the battery will never be realised. So we're top capping it. So that as the, imagine the sort of degradation like that, 
at the point you get to eight years, the top bit will have been masked. So we'll have, we'll have effectively had like a speed limiter on a car. Then, then taking that forward, the battery is not, it, it, it hasn't gone to zero, it's gone to probably about 80% and we've capped that top 20%. So the driver and drivers of the car will never notice a difference in performance. So that hopefully answers your question. And the range will be the same. The thing that will influence the range more than anything is if somebody were to continually fast charge, quick charge the vehicle, the, the battery, because what affects battery degradation is heat, and obviously 400 volts uh, will basically put more heat into the battery, will generate heat within the battery, sorry, and that will affect the uh, affect it. So when I say eight years, some batteries could well be at, still at capped capacity in 10 years time some will only reach 6 because of the usage patterns now we may well have to write something into battery usage contracts that limits people's ability to fast charge it or something like that and the other point is that battery is not useless at 8 years that battery still has a high degree of capacity so we're working with companies like plant you know people will use it to store uh, wind power over overnight Bear in mind my previous comment about increasing uh, commitment to renewable energy in this country. And also, uh, some people will, will, will still use the batteries because they don't need that, that range anyway. And also, we're, we're working with companies on, in developing secondary uses for that. And I'll give you a clear example. Uh, plant on a building site, on a construction site, needs battery power. The challenge for building companies is to is to take away petrol generators and things like that from a from a building site, and uh, second life of our batteries is one of the things that could use that. You had a second, yeah. How you actually kind of apply that for the maintenance of the engine, like the petrol engine? But how strong the system is? The petrol engine is very. Simple. It can be repaired by any mechanics, like 100 years old, and it can it can work under any condition. When it's very cold, it works. When it's very hot, it works. It works on the sea level. It works when mm. very high, like above the mountain. How strong the system is? Because if you if you make a small accident, then the system stops. For a petrol engine, it's more strong. Um, the electric motor is is very. The electric motor is the same electric motor that we probably had in our toy cars, well, in your case probably slightly more recently than mine, I was going to say 30 odd years ago. It's a simple it, it, series of electromagnets and it spins round. There's not a lot that can go wrong and in terms of safety, as I say, probably the, the greatest technical advancement has been batteries, that's why I made a big point of that. In terms of safety, um, we're targeting the same levels of safety that we would have on our uh, standard petrol or diesel. Okay. Um, v yeah. V okay. VW. VW are very clearly. Uh, going for efficient diesel engines. They make a big thing about blue motion. BMW are the, are the same with efficient dynamics. So they're looking at, at, at 
a clear engineering, you know, engineering excellence in, in diesel in diesel. And they've really discounted those two manufacturers have pretty well discounted electric vehicles as far as I can see from their product lineup. Other mainstream manufacturers, Peugeot and Citroen, are both uh, taking the same vehicle, the, the Mitsubishi iMeve, they're giving it different names like a C0, and uh, they, they are having a, a one, basically one vehicle in their range. So I am biased, so this is my view. What they're doing is tokenism. They're saying, look, we're an electric vehicle manufacturer, here's our electric vehicle. What we're saying is, we're an electric vehicle manufacturer, here's our urban car, here's our I7 car, here's our M1 segment car, and here's our city car. So I see, I do see ourselves as being differentiated in that respect. In terms of the other manufacturers, I think what we will find is as the market picks up, I think a lot of people are sitting on the fence at the moment. They've probably put a fair amount of R&D into electric vehicles. They just haven't publicised it yet. And I think if the market takes, up, takes off, you will see a lot of other mainstream manufacturers coming in. And I'll give you one final example. I believe that Ford will go into electric vehicles through their light commercial vehicles. I don't think you, you will not necessarily see a, a, a Ford car, spelt C-A-R, as an electric vehicle, but you'll probably see a van first. Yep. Yeah. It will last till 2014. It is from a fund of the 200 million, which if you think about 200 million and work it backwards, it'll buy you about 40,000 cars. There will be an amount of money uh, in 2011, 12 and 13 and into 2014, but they, they won't commit beyond that. What they recognise is that to, in, because with relatively low volumes there will be a there will be diseconomies of scale, so there will be a premium price. What they're expecting us as the manufacturers to do is, as our production goes like that and we achieve the economies of scale, we can naturally reduce the price of the vehicles. But they're effectively saying to customers, come and buy a vehicle now, you will not be disadvantaged because that grant is there. And the grant will be 25% of the price of the car capped at £5,000. So that they are... Uh, they are linking it to some extent to the price of the vehicle. Does that answer both of your questions? I don't think I, I okay. I don't think we will do it overnight and I suspect the compromise with the government will be that the grant will be tapered down because they don't want to write an open check. The grant will be tapered down and we will be expected to, to pay a, effectively a share of that. And if I give you an example where they've already done that, when they launched the scrappage scheme, which Len was talking about in, in May of last year, their headline was £2,000. The reality was uh, Alistair Darling dipped into his pocket for £1,000 and they came to the motor industry for the other 1000 So that there have been precedents set in terms of that. There was another question. Yep. Do you see a similar kind of money from governments in Asia, China, and India, or is it 
Okay, I've never been asked that question before, and I think, uh, okay, I, I'm going to tell you what, what, what my view is. The, the, the Carlos Ghosn statement was 10% of the global car market will be electric vehicles. 10% of the global car market doesn't just mean Western Europe, so it has to be, be truly global. I think perhaps the, the vanguard will be uh, in Western Europe for a couple of reasons. One is uh, most of the government incentive schemes, and government incentive schemes are quite important to, to make it happen. Is it, if you think back to that sort of four square thing, so it really depends on whether the governments of China and, and India are, are prepared to do so. I think those two governments in particular have bigger fish to fry because I think their, their electricity industry is still probably the worst in, 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 in the world. And I think uh, if you were to show a, a slide in terms of the, uh, where the carbon comes from, the, mo the automotive puts its hand up to a share of about 20%. Aviation is somewhere over here, it, it's single figure. Heavy industry and power is where almost half the, the carbon comes from. And I think those two economies, if they want to decarbonize, they will probably go for power before they go for cars. I think once they've done that, or they'll put their money into that, electric cars will probably be sold in China and India, but I don't think they'll be subsidized by the government. And it really is a question of how it's going to happen, but I think it'll just be behind the wave. I don't think uh, I don't think to be honest that's an awful lot different to uh, in this country if you look at who has electric vehicle there's a Tesla which is a which is a sort of 90,000 pound sports car there are some niche commercial vehicle manufacturers and there's a G Wiz which um, well, I'll let you make up your own minds on whether you'd like to be involved in an accident in one of those so I don't think I think what will happen is as the one of our um, one of our problems is that Renault are virtually unknown in, in India I think we would probably be uh, what you might see as a Mahindra Mahindra car uh, or a Renault badged as Mahindra Mahindra um, and equally you might see uh, you know, I, I, I can't speak for who Tata will, will pair up with or what have you so I think it will happen and I think that It, it would be so dependent. It would be so dependent on infrastructure, um, and there is this: who's going to move first? And the energy companies are not. They're quite happy. To, they're happy to do tokenism. They're happy to put 12 charging posts up with their logo on it. But but to get over this range anxiety, you really need to be able to sort of drive 100 miles. But I agree that 
the size of India, the economic status of India, the population, and the, when I say the economic status, I mean the improving wealth and consumerism, means that you cannot ignore the market. It's a question of how we can access that market. And it's the same for China because you can only really get into China if you have a, a partnership with a, a Chinese automotive manufacturer. They're not keen on people like us trying to muscle in on their market. So there are bigger, bigger decisions than electric cars, which is just how, how would a manufacturer like Renault access those markets. You had a question? Are they plug-in hybrids, forgive my ignorance, are they plug-in hybrids or are they traditional? Um, I, I see no significant, unless I'm missing a point, I see no significant difference between a, a diesel hybrid and an, an electric, as, as a pure hybrid. Go on. If you if you do the math, so if you if you, if you took a, a diesel engine which was a, was a hundred grams, so it was it was cutting edge, and the limiting factor with a hybrid is the range. A lot of um, hybrids will only do around about ten miles on, ele on electricity. So I think uh, it's it's probably still you're you're still going to use your your diesel engine quite heavily within that within within that so I'm not it, it will definitely bring down the ceiling in terms of hybrid emissions but it certainly won't get it anywhere close to electric you're not satisfied with that answer any other questions Uh, batteries will be produced in Sunderland. Um, there are. It was actually written on the on the, the slides, but I unfortunately fired through them so quickly. The um, the vehicles themselves will be uh, produced in France. So a Kangoo van is pr produced at a factory called Maubeuge in, in northern France. Uh, battery production because of the s the weight of the battery. Um, Batteries, it's, not, it's not a particularly good idea to lug batteries halfway across the planet. So there will be three centres of battery production, Japan, North America and Europe. In, North America, in Europe there will be three centres within that, which will be Portugal. Uh, Portugal are, are uh, very much leading, uh, leading the way in terms of, uh, from a European perspective. France, because we're very big there, and Sunderland because of the tie-in with, with Nissan and because they have production there. Um, does that answer the question? So the, 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 we're, not, we're not setting up any new factories for these. They are lines within existing factories. No. 
we, we are, I don't want to be a sort of isolationist. We're a, we're a global player, but we're heavily weighted into Western Europe. And so most of our, uh, when Len shows his chart that says we're the third biggest car manufacturer in the world, if you look at the, the, Renault, UK, the Renault bit within that, Renault are very dominant in, in Europe, uh, Nissan in Southeast Asia and North America. Nissan will produce in North America, but we won't. And Southeast Asia, likewise Southeast Asia. Any other questions? Right, okay. Well, thank you very much. You've been a great audience.